All right, Erev Tov. We are in our fifth shiur, I believe, of this winter series, Baruch Hashem. I appreciate those of you being patient with me the last couple of weeks, taking different breaks for different reasons, some of them to be with family, some of them because I was teaching in other Batei Midrash, and many of you were in those shiurim as well. And I thank you for that patience in Bezalat Hashem. Now as we go through until the next batch of holidays, I hope to be continuing consistently on Tuesdays together, Bezalat Hashem Baruch. Today's shiur is going to take us into a whole different world, a different, a different approach to Judaism than many people are used to. And I think that it's a major component that is missing in Jewish conversation today. It's uncomfortable. And I think the root of discomfort is people don't, people don't want to deal with discomfort. People wish to be comfortable, always. And part of being comfortable is to live in denial. And Am Yisrael has for a very long time been very comfortable living in denial. And there are certain Jewish communities that are more guilty of this than others. And I'm not here to point fingers or to blame anyone. But very often, the only way to solve a problem is by having a conversation that the problem exists in the first place. You cannot possibly discuss issues of equality, of injustice, of social issues that are raging in the world if you're unable and unwilling to talk about those problems in the first place. There is an attitude in the Jewish community, and this attitude is, let's shove everything under the rug, everything here is perfect, the problems exist everywhere else except for here. And aside from that being a lie, and it says, Banim the children of HaKadosh Baruch Hu don't lie. So aside from the fact that we're not allowed to lie, it's a biblical prohibition for us to lie. Stay away from lies. But aside from falsehood and lies and the inherent moral crime in doing that, you can never actually fix problems in the world unless you're willing to talk about them. And very often these issues are slightly political. And we're, we're careful. We're careful as spiritual leaders of people not to marginalize anybody else. And I have done my utmost since the day that I became a rabbi to make sure that the issues I discuss with my kihilah, with my talmidim, wherever they are, are always going to be relevant and can be circled back to the Torah. Things that are pure politics, that are just political in nature, I have an aversion to them. I'm allergic to those things by my very nature. But things that Torah speaks about, the Torah requires us to speak about, we have no choice but to speak about them. Sometimes Am Yisrael likes to present as if we are one people. We say in the Minchah services, you are one, your name is one. Umi, who and who is like your people Yisrael? Umi chamecha Yisrael, goy echad ba'aretz. You're one nation on earth. By the way, the word goy in general is not a bad word. Somehow in Ashkenazi vernacular, that word became derogatory. But we are the greatest goy on earth. That's us. Am Yisrael. Goy echad We're one united people on earth. Whenever I say this tefillah Milcha, I wonder who am I lying to? Goy <laughs> echad. I know Hashem is one, fine. His name is one, whatever that means. But goy echad, one nation... I believe Haman's assessment of the Jewish people's situation is much more correct. He says, Yesh no am echad, there is one nation. But this one nation is a special kind of one. It's separated and scattered throughout the nations. Separated and scattered, separated internally, scattered physically, externally to the world. And their, their faith is different than anyone else on earth. And they don't listen to the rules of the king either. So Jews have problems of infighting. 
problems of being scattered globally, problems of a lack of obedience to law. These are issues Haman is identifying in Am Yisrael. And as a Jewish community, so long as we deny Haman's assessment of our situation, we're never going to be able to fix the problem. We'll never be able to fix the problem of Jewish unity unless we're willing to deal with those issues. What causes disunity? What causes discord? Are we willing to take ownership of our contribution to the problems in the Jewish community? Everyone in being so self-righteous and pointing the fingers at everybody else is so busy not solving the problem that 2,000 years later, we're still in Galut, so much so that our rabbis tell us that in every generation in which Ben David does not come, the Mashiach does not come, that Jewish people is guilty of destroying the Ben Mikdash. Why? What did I do to destroy the Ben Mikdash? Because I did nothing to change the situation that got us here in the first place. And if I did nothing to change that situation, then I'm equally guilty to the people who actually caused the problem in the first place. What's the difference between the initiator of a crime and the perpetuator of a crime? The initiator of injustice and the perpetuators of injustice? And so it would be Shem Tov Gagin, ironically, after attacking the reform movement just last time, is going to walk us through the problems of discord and lack of unity in Am Yisrael. And it's important, it's crucial that we're able to analyze these things and to take the messages from them and not to be afraid, not to be afraid to talk about them as they really were or to try at least to discuss them from as many angles as we possibly can. Most likely in today's shiur, we're not going to get to the 12 examples that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin will set out for us in the next shiur. But at least to build a foundation, the basis of what we're going to be walking into is something we have to do today. Before I do that, there's a text that I, I just pulled off my bookshelf right before I came here. I didn't have a chance to send it to you, but I, I can send it to you as soon as the shiur is over. The conversations that we had the last two shiurim about the Sephardic rabbi's contempt for Jews who were less than traditional in Eastern Europe. The more sinister side of that, we introduced characters like Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin and the, the sinister evil side of this story. It makes me uncomfortable, just like made everyone else uncomfortable. But it's part of a history that I have to agree, I have to admit that existed and probably still exists until today. Harab Uziel, Alav Shalom who was another one of our giants in our Jewish tradition. He was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel until 1953. He passed away five years after the founding of the State of Israel. He left behind, they printed it recently as a little tiny pamphlet. He left behind a spiritual will, which one day we're going to have a shoe in because this will is, is a beautiful piece of work in its own right. But Uziel writes here a sentence which is so powerful and I think that so many people translated it, not incorrectly, but without the nuance that it deserves. Rav Uziel looks out at the Jewish people. And he asks them to embrace two values. Emet, truth, and shalom, peace. Two values that Am Yisrael needs. And we've already spoken in the past, perhaps in my shiurim and maran and shulchan aruch, that truth and peace are very hard to coexist with each other. It's hard to be truthful and also peaceful at the same time. Those who are into truth most often develop a certain militant attitude. And those who are obsessed with peace very often will avoid the uncomfortable truths in order to make sure that peace reigns. 
Rav Uziel asks from us to balance these two things. Don't just be shalom, don't just be emet. Ve'emet ve'ashalom ehavu. You have to love both. And he writes the following sentence in the last few paragraphs of his will. Hasiru kol gormei ha'perud ve'amachloket mimachanenu u'mimindinatenu. Remove all the causes of separation and fighting from inside of our camp and inside of our country. And instead replace them, swap them out with all of those things that cause for peace and unity in our camp. And our camp will be pure and holy. It will be uh, strong, it will be sieged, unified, like a fortified wall of a fortress. So that no negative force will be able to breach this stronghold, which is Am Yisrael. Remove the divisiveness from among us, and you'll see a united Jewish people. But it's important for me to mention that Avuziel doesn't write, get rid of the fighting, get rid of the discord. The word he uses is intentional. Kol gormei hapirud. All those things which cause discord. There are causes. We always try to fix the effect. The symptom. We're really dealing with a symptom instead of dealing with the problem, the root of the issue. Jews have opinions. Those opinions lead to conversations, lead to fighting. So what? But there's a gorem. There's something else that causes people to fight with each other. And unless we're willing to look at Jewish history and identify those problems and have conversations about them, how do we expect that if we can't talk about something that happened a thousand years ago, how do you expect to have a conversation about something that's happening right now? How do we expect to deal with these issues that are inside of our Jewish community right now? On a personal level, I've been struggling the last few weeks. Some of my Talmudim have been facing unprecedented, unprecedented feelings of racism in the Jewish community. Conversations, things that people say. And I, for me, by the way, I, I, if you get offended, it's okay. You're allowed to be offended. If somebody's a racist and they're teva, they're an evil person. To hate somebody else because of the color of their skin, their religion, they, whatever reason you hate somebody, it's not a reason. If somebody punch you in the face, you hate them, I'm not going to get involved between you two. But to hate entire people, entire nations, entire ethnicities, entire... Cultures, it does not make sense to anybody who has an ounce of, of Torah in their body, let alone humanity first. And the fact that inside of Am Yisrael, especially those who purport, it's not true, but they purport to be representative of Torah, of Judaism, of tradition, you can't be a hypocrite. Remember the first thing I said today? We have a biblical prohibition against lying. Stop pretending that you're a real Jew when you hate other people. If we're not willing to talk about these problems, so when are we going to fix them? We're in denial that they ever happened. Comes time for Yom Ha'atzma'ut. My whole community celebrates Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Israeli Independence Day in my community is a real holiday. A Yom Tov, not like other people celebrate barbecues and flags. It's a real Yom Tov. But how can you go celebrating a holiday without talking about the terrible injustices that happened at the founding of the State of Israel and the years that follow? Internally in Am Yisrael, externally towards other nations. There are conversations that must be had. It doesn't take one ounce away from your integrity. To the contrary, it makes you a more truthful person.
Rav Uziel passes away after writing this letter, but not before writing to his brethren. And I am your brother. Who was forced to separate himself from you to depart to the next world. And he signs his name, Ben Zion Meir Chai Uziel. Sometimes I wonder about this sentence. Rav Uziel was praying, was yearning, was desiring that Am Yisrael should try not just to become peaceful, before the step of being peaceful, to at least uncover, to find, to put their finger on what are the problems, what's causing this problem. We're aware of the lack of unity, but what's causing this problem? When we go into this next conversation of Rav Shem Tov Gagin, Rav Shem Tov has made himself clear that he takes a stance here. He is from the camp of those who despise everything that Reform Judaism stands for. In reading these words, I don't associate myself with that stance. But I'm reading it to you, part of having a painful conversation of the separation that does exist inside of Amisleh. Let's read it together. If you're in the PDF, you should be, uh, there's a PDF, it says Keter Shem Tov. I think it's volume 3, pages 1 to 30. I actually have no idea which, which page I'm on. It's Roman numeral 10. I think if I remember my Roman numerals correctly. Here, it's going to be It's going to be on page 8 of the PDF. Do you see page 8? There's a Three in the middle of the page, in Roman numerals. Do you see that? If anyone needs help finding anything throughout the shul, please don't hesitate to just interrupt me and ask or ask in the chat box. I won't be monitoring the chat box, but if somebody else wants to answer, you are more than welcome to. Harav Shem Tov Gagin writes the following words. Omnam, nonetheless, before this group of Jews, he's referring to the reform movement, we already find precedent of other groups in the Jewish people that also try to uproot the Torah of Israel and the tradition of Israel. And we saw exactly what was the outcome of such movements. The fragmentation of opinions, the separation of people, which ultimately led to the downfall, the destruction of Am Yisrael. From the moment that there was a split between the Jewish kingdom. Are you familiar with the split in Am Yisrael that happens in the days of Rechavan? Anybody want to fill us in on this history a little bit? So we have a period of Shoftim, of judges in Am Yisrael. Remember this? And the Shoftim are leading the Jewish people. That's the beginning of the, the times of the, and the writings already of the Nevi'im. The Shoftim are leading the Jewish people. And the Jewish people at some point declared that they want a king. What's the reason they want a king? Rabbanit, I didn't hear you. Okay, so there's the first Jewish value of we want to be like all the nations of the world. 
exactly like them. And so we want a king like they have a king. All the cool kids have kings. We also want it. So Amisel wanted a king, they got a king. By the way, they suffered tremendously from these kings. From all of the kings of Israel that you can count, you could probably put a, a, in your hands, just on your fingertips, how many of them were actually righteous people who dealt kindly with the Jewish people. We brought about our own, our own suffering. There's another reason, though, and I think that we're always judging Am Yisrael unfavorably when dealing with why the Jewish people wanted kings. There was another more practical reason, maybe even two more practical reasons, for why the Jewish people were looking for a united Jewish government of kings. What was happening first the institution of Shoftim? Do you remember anyone could think to me of the sons of Eli, Eli Akohen, who's in the Mishkan? We already hear complaints about them. What do we hear? I gave a shiur about this recently in our class. The, the, the priesthood was like corrupt. Very good. And, yeah. Jewish leadership was corrupt. Jewish leadership was corrupt. And just like, by the way, the Chachamim, the sages of the Talmud, essentially replaced the class of Kohanim. I'm discussing this now on my Monday and Tuesday night classes here in San Diego. Just like they replaced the corrupt government with the sages of Israel who came to fix that corruption, you had a problem of the Shoftim being corrupt. And the Jewish people felt that they were not being led properly. They were not being treated properly. And they were hoping that if they could try another form of government, that that may end up better for them. A more practical side to all of this is there were enemy invasions. You see already in Barak and Avinam, you see there are wars, Israel's borders are not secure. And the Jewish people start going through this thought process of perhaps if we unite under one central government, we'll have more resources to protect ourselves. There's a number of reasons why the Jewish people unite. But essentially this is referred to in this time period about a thousand years of what we call Malchut Yisrael HaMeuchedet, the united Jewish nation, the Jewish government more correctly in which the Jewish people governed themselves. Now, historians, obviously, anything that comes to do with Tanakh, they're not exactly clear if they believe what it says in the Tanakh or not. For our intents and purposes, I'm not here to deal with uh, the biblical criticism and the like. Rather, for in the, in the frame of reference of Am Yisrael, of Torah Yisrael, we had a Jewish kingdom lasting for roughly a thousand years. That Jewish kingdom ultimately falls apart, not after David HaMelech, but right after Shalomu HaMelech. So David HaMelech is succeeded by his son, Shlomo HaMelech. Right after that, Shlomo HaMelech's oldest son takes over the government. Anyone know his name? I mentioned it earlier, if you remember. His name was Rechavam. Rechavam is the, the Bechol. He's the firstborn of Shlomo HaMelech. And he's the one who's now leading Malchut Yisrael, the Jewish people. And what happens... What happens at that point in time? They split the Judaism. What, uh, what happened? They split the, Ju the, the Why, why? Ima, tell us why. My mother is the Tanakh expert they, here. They knew that and they said, so they don't want to get together not to go to Betamidash. So we split down the lines of Malchut Israel and Malchut Yehuda. Essentially, ten tribes and two tribes. They split apart from each other. But anyone remember why they split apart from each other? When Chavan asked, so that's exactly what happens. The background for the story is uh, representatives of the tribes of Israel come to complain to Rechavan. It seems to be an unfair tax that the people who are not from the tribe of Rechavam, of Yehuda, are, being, are not being taxed, but the rest of the tribes are carrying the burden of being taxed in an unequal fashion. And so Rechavam doesn't know what to do. He goes to his advisors. 
The elders tell them, listen, give in to them. If you want to be a leader, you want to buy the people. You want to gain their trust. You want to gain their approval. You want to be kind with them. Once they're on board with you, you could do whatever you want afterwards. But you first have to show them. You have to give them something uh, to show that you care about them. The young generation says, no, that's a weak model of leadership. If you give in to their demands, you'll show that you're a weak king. You're not as mighty as your forefathers. What you should do, go harsh on them. Go hard. And essentially, Rechavam rejects the advice of the elders. And he follows the advice of the youth. He taxes them more than they were initially taxed. Just to show them you complained, I'm going to make it worse for you. And the kingdom of Israel splits. Before I talk about that split, it's important. Our Chachamim and the Talmud mention from this story that whatever the elders tell you, uh, something, you should always take the advice of the elders over the advice of the youth. Even if the advice of the elders look like they're telling you not to do something and the youth are telling you to be active and do something, Ultimately, the elders know what to do for Am Yisrael. They know what to do with your future. I think in life, it's a, it's a very important thing. All of us have things that we go through in our lives, and we think we're the first people to invent the wheel. Like We're the first people dealing with this problem. We're the first people trying to buy our first car, trying to sign our first mortgage, trying to rent our first apartment. We're the first people in the world getting married or having children or having issues at school, whatever it might be in life. And very often, why would we go ask our parents? What do they know? Yes, I'll tell you, your parents may not know anything. I don't know who your parents are. But I can tell you one thing is they've gone through many of the things you've gone through already. At the very least, just for what we call, uh, what do we call it, a mind hiving, just to crowdsource and hear from your parents, your elders, people who have done this before, tell me what your experience was like. I'll make my own decision. But let me hear. There's nothing wrong in, to the contrary. It's always a good thing. That you should go and ask the elders, your, your parents, ask them how things work. First time having a child, you want to know how to do things? Yeah, maybe things have changed in 30 years. So what? You could still ask. Get a little bit of advice. Chavam didn't listen to advice. The kingdom of Israel splits. So the kingdom of Israel splits between the tribe of Israel and uh, of Yehuda and Benjamin. They stay, essentially they own the Temple Mount and that whole area of Israel. And then you have the rest of the ten tribes. That's the majority of the Jewish people who split away. And they're led by who? What's his name? Very good. So uh, we pronounce Yaovam ben Nevat. He was the new leader of this Jewish faction. He was uh, now the new leader of them, the new king. And they call themselves Malchut Israel. They're the kingdom of Israel. Yaovam ben Nevat leads the Jewish people down some pretty terrible roads. Mostly, he now has to deal with the dilemma of how do you offer your sacrifices in the temple if the temple belongs to the enemy government of the Jewish people. How do you go into their territory? How do you come back from their territory? Yehovah puts a ban on going to Jerusalem, builds his own place for people to worship and offer sacrifices. This leads to chaos in Am Yisrael. Even the centralized point of worship, the Jewish people can't agree on. Push comes to shove. What ends up happening, what ends up happening is Yehovah ben Nevat's kingdom falls apart. The 10 tribes go into exile. This is after roughly 750 years, if I'm not mistaken about my time period. It takes a long time. Uh, for this, maybe not that long actually. I'm not thinking the dates concurrently. It was a long time that we had this kingdom, and ultimately, what happens is kingdom disappears. The ten tribes are still lost to us today, thousands of years later. We don't know who they are, we don't know where they are. We have some guesses, we have some research. Uh, Rabbi Shemtov Gagin himself, by the way, researched the Jews of Cochin and other places, which he was also on his own type of route to uncover the lost tribes of Israel. But this split down the middle of Am Yisrael ultimately caused that everybody lost. We lost 10 tribes. I don't think you can understand how huge of a deal that is. 
10 tribes of Am Yisrael disappeared, lost for good. Who are we left with? We're left with essentially the Jews of Jerusalem, the tribe of Yehuda, the tribe of Binyamin. If you remember, in this period of history already, the Jewish people begin to be attacked by enemy nations. You're talking about, if I recall the numbers correctly, about 35 to 40,000 Jews left in the old city of Jerusalem. This is Am Yisrael. If one of those enemies were to wipe out the Jewish people, you and I would not be here today. The Jewish people didn't just split. They split to the point where we were, we were hanging on by a thread. I think there are many lessons to be learned from this story in history. It's exactly where B'Yishem Tov Gagin is going to take us. But it's something I want you to go and look up. I'm not sure if there are English Wikipedia entries, but research this. And essentially you'll find that in this period of history, the encyclopedias document the following thing. There was the kingdom of Israel, and there was a kingdom of Yehuda. Religion, Judaism. Language, both of them. Biblical Hebrew. Leaders, different leaders. Capitals, different capitals. It's an embarrassment that for Am Yisrael, for so long of our history, it's not that we couldn't pray in the same synagogue. That's, that's bad. We couldn't even go live in the same countries. You needed passports to get between one Jewish community and the other Jewish community. We weren't allowed to go to the Bet Migdash, or we didn't allow others to go to the Bet Migdash. How much of the history sounds like it's happening again right now? Who has a monopoly over the Kotel, and who doesn't? Who's going to decide who comes to the Bet Knesset, and who doesn't? Who's going to say we go there, we eat there, we don't go there, we don't eat there? Am Yisrael is doing worse than what we could have ever imagined in the days of Yehovah ben Nevat and the kings of Israel. We're living this right now. It's an issue we have to deal with because it goes far back. The Torah tells us we must ponder the events of history because if we forget them, if we forget them, we'll never learn the lessons. What they were screaming from the mountaintops of Yehuda, and Am Yisrael didn't listen then, their screams are still relevant today because we haven't taken any of their advice yet. Let's keep reading. They became two groups, even in regards to religion. And essentially it caused for the Jewish people to worship idols outside of the land of Yehuda. And this sin, this, this terrible event in history that was led by Yerovam ben Nevat caused constant obstacles and problems for the Jewish people. And ultimately it was the children of Yehuda, those tribes who stayed in the kingdom of Yehuda, who clung to Hashem. And Ephraim ended up assimilating into the nations. And they imitated their actions. Like the Prophet says, the people of Ephraim, the house of Israel, has surrounded me with lies and deceit, says HaKadosh Baruch And Yehuda is still there, is still holding steadfast to the Creator of the universe. Even HaKadosh Baruch loses out. It's not that the Jewish people lose out. HaKadosh Baruch loses out on the majority of the Jewish people abandoning him for Abu Dazarah. And what ultimately happened to Ephraim? Ultimately, they were destroyed 
and they were lost to the world. The book in Devarim says, and they were scattered to another country. And the rabbis say in the Talmud, the name of Rabbi Chelbo, I have a, in my Gemara, the words are a little different. So I'm not sure if Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin was copying by heart, and because of that, our Talmud that I have in front of me and his Talmud don't add up, or perhaps uh, that he had a different Nosach in the Talmud, but it means the same thing, that the, the pursuit of Am Yisrael, after this wine and this, uh, this, this waters, foreign things, pleasures of the world, this Yetzahara caused the Jewish people to forget HaKadosh Baruch and for the ten tribes to be lost. V'nitme'u ben ha'goyim, and they were absorbed into the nations of the world. V'havdu mitoch ha'kahal, and they were lost to the Jewish people. Ad hayom And due to this, that they were involved in their own pleasures and pursuits of this world, we have lost them even until today. We don't know where they are. And this is not the case for the tribe of Yehuda and the tribe of Levi. Odam kayamim. They're still in existence. And about them it says, and by the way, it's important to know that the tribes that are left are Yehuda and Levi. I know that I'm not Jewish. Because I'm from the tribe of Yehuda, uh, of Levi. So I know that I'm a Levi. Technically, you shouldn't call me a Yehudi. I'm not a Yehudi. Actually, from my mother's side, I'm also from the tribe of Yehuda. So my mother's side, their last name originally was Ben David. They're descendants of King David. So maybe she's a Yehudiya. But I'm not. I'm a Levi. Why do we call Jews Yehudim? Because the majority of Jews left at this point in our period in history are Yehudim, they're from the tribe of Yehuda. You can assume that if you're part of the Jewish people and you are not Kohanim or Levi'im, most likely, not necessarily, but most likely, you are from the tribe of Yehuda. About them was fulfilled with a prophet prophecy. Hashem said, just like this new sky, this new earth that I've created is still standing so too your descendants will still be there. They'll still be in existence and your name will not be forgotten. Because ultimately the Kohanim, the Levi'im, those who clung to the Torah, came out of this tribe of Yehuda. This period of Am Yisrael was horrendous. And if you look on page 9, so just skip with me to page 9 for a moment, you'll see there's a list of plagues that happened to Am Yisrael, terrible things, the, the 12 instances of discord and lack of unity that happened in the Jewish people. The first one Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin mentions, look, you see the Aleph over there? On page 7 of your PDF? The Aleph says, Mamlechet Yisrael nifredam Yehuda. The separation of the kingdom of Israel from the kingdom of Yehuda. The first major split that happens in Am Yisrael is when the Jewish people are split into two. Essentially, this could have been a civil war. It was a civil war. I, mean, I don't know how exactly you're going to define a civil war. We were two kingdoms that were enemies of each other. Both Jewish people, both practitioners of the same religion, practitioners of the same religion. We belong biologically to the same group of people. We spoke the same language. We wrote the same language. And yet we couldn't get along with each other. By the way, you also make another observation here. That more often than not, the people suffer because of leadership 
that is corrupt and cares only about its own interests. I'm not passing judgment on any of our biblical characters, but because of taxes, you're willing to lose all of Am Yisrael? Because of Avodah Zarah, because of your own ego, you want to block people from going to Yerushalayim? Leadership does whatever is good for itself. The politicians in every government, in every place in the world, only made it to where they made it because they took care of themselves. And they rely on foolish people who look up to them and think that they're heroes and think that they're leaders. People will fight with each other at their Shabbat tables. Rabbis will marginalize people in Batei Knesset. People won't pray with each other, won't talk to each other because of I have one of uh, my neighbors in the neighborhood. In the last elections, they broke up this couple. Why? Because of who voted for who. Hold on, I mean, that's, that's what's going to break it. The person that you voted for and the one that you voted for, they don't even know that you voted for them. They don't care about you. They care about themselves. You've destroyed your life for nothing. People in positions of leadership more often than not got there because they only cared about themselves. Through corruption, that's how you make it to the top. So why does it surprise anybody when you find corrupt leadership? And why does anybody who's good and not corrupt ever run after such people? I'll never know. Harambam Katav, the Rambam writes, where the second paragraph after, or the third paragraph, it's, there's a number 21 over there. So back on page, uh, back on page 8, I think I sent you to page 9, but I meant to send you to page, uh, we're now on page 8. Harambam Katav, yesh meha'umot akadmoniot. There are nations, the earlier nations, shenishar shmam v'lo zaram, that we have, that remember their names, but we have none of their descendants. And there are nations on earth where we have their descendants, but we don't know their names, meaning they lost their initial identities, their original identities. And this is not the case with the Yehudim, with the Jewish people. That both their name, their original heritage, and their descendants are still in existence. And how surprised would you, dear reader, be to find out? What the wise priest wrote in his book. Which priest? Look here in the bottom of the page. Uh, there's a footnote 22. You see that? Footnote 22. Shem HaKomer, the name of the Komer was ABT. Abit Nonote. This was a Christian priest, a Catholic priest actually, who was, it was Abit Nonote. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was a Jesuit priest. We're going to talk about him in a moment. Let me get to him in a second. But Rabbi Shamtov Gagin is quoting here a Jesuit priest that's going to impress you with what he has to say. Ayen Besivoy says, look in his book, Chelek Bet Perg Yuzayin, the second volume of his work, chapter 17. And his book was printed with the permission of Clement Thirteenth. So this Clemens, this Clement, this abbot, is a Jesuit book that has a haskama, it has an approval on it from the Pope in Rome. Does anybody here have any idea why that is such a big deal? Aside from the Rabbi Shem Tov again quoting an abbot, why is it such a big deal that the Pope in Rome is giving a haskama, is giving an approbation to a book by this abbot Nonote, who is a Jesuit priest? 
let's ask you this question for the Amehagets, like me in the room. Anybody know what a Jesuit is? I think they actually pronounce themselves maybe like a Jesuit. They say the S a little differently. Yes? Well, didn't the Jesuits, what, didn't they kind of break away from the, the, the Pope's rule? That's right. So there was a, very, very good. There was, I think, some 600 years ago, so don't, I'm not holding my numbers down, there was a group that was later known as the Society of Jesus, uh, or otherwise known as uh, the Jesuits. Yeah, this is who they were. Um, they were led by someone by the last name of Ignatia or Ignatius. And uh, these Jesuits, they broke away. So I think it's hard to say they broke away from the Pope's rule. There definitely were elements in the Catholic Church that viewed them as rebellious. And they viewed them as some kind of a threat to the local government in, in Rome and to the, the Pope itself, the Church itself. The Jesuits, though, have come around full circle. Right now in the Vatican, there is a Jesuit pope. To the best of our knowledge, this is the first Jesuit pope in the history of the Catholic Church. So there are rumors that some of the popes earlier, at least one of them, may have been a Jesuit. Essentially, in the Catholic Church, there are orders of priests. Listen, I'm really not a Bucky in the, in the Catholic Church and its inner workings. But if Chacham Fa'ur wrote a book on the horizontal society of Judaism, the Catholic Church is very much a vertical society. So there's popes and there's all kinds of other elements. And it's, it's like a legitimate government I mean, in the sense of how it works and the order and the obedience and their rules. And you don't want to break those rules. Other rules which are broken just cause you to be relocated somewhere else to do those things elsewhere. But, but some rules get you in really big trouble. This, this particular... Order of Jesuits is, from what I understand, it's the largest order of priests inside of the Catholic Church. Now, there are regular Catholic priests. They have a name for them. Uh, if I could pronounce it, I would tell it to you. But in any case, these, these regular priests are the kind that you know. They study theology. They study mostly pastoral work. They go out to churches. They lead people. They're a very traditional clergy member role of the Catholic Church. There are many other orders of the Catholic Church, but one of the orders, this one that we mentioned here, the Jesuits or the Society of Jesus, they are the, not just the largest, but they're perhaps the most active. So they, they make a joke. I was listening earlier today, I was doing my research, and what a Jesuit priest said, they say that whenever there are, uh, you ask a Jesuit what they believe, he said, it depends how many Jesuits are in the room, that's how many things they believe in. It's a very fluid group of people. They do all kinds of jobs, so Jesuits, can work in clergy, though not normally, it's not normally where they belong. You normally will find Jesuits in, in homeless shelters and outreach organizations and halfway houses and soup kitchens. They teach in schools, so I believe the Jesuits themselves operate some 51 universities. That they, it's the, those are their universities. Uh, they, they are highly educated people, very deeply, uh, well, very well versed in theology in general, but specifically their own take on on Catholic theology, it takes some 12 years to graduate uh, Jesuit priest school. They have people that are not exactly priests, they're also brothers, they call them Jesuit brothers. The reason for this is Jesuits are a very humanitarian group of the Catholic Church. Humanitarian, read also missionizing. Part of their humanitarian efforts involves a very heavy dose of, of missionary work. If you've ever read about the Native Americans in this country or other countries like Africa where Catholics came and you know, my wife always says there was one African uh, tribal leader who said, uh, we, were, we had our eyes open and we were holding on to the land and the Catholics had the Bible. And then we closed our eyes for one moment and by the time we opened our eyes, the Catholics had our land and we had their Bible. That was exactly how their history went. 
that the Jesuits are a very aggressive group in terms of their outreach that also means that they're everywhere and they're active everywhere. I don't think, and here I'm not going to get into politics, but the current Pope that is in Rome right now, people are very fond of him. You hear things that he says, they sound very reasonable. He says things that are very inspirational. People are writing articles about him all over the place. If you remember right before this last Pope, uh, the Catholic Church was in, in shambles. Uh, the people's faith in the Catholic Church was, was falling apart right and left. The, the media only had negative things to say about the Pope and anybody who occupied any office in the Vatican. And I believe that, uh, <laughs> Betsy, that's an accurate observation, but I, I am not going to say that on camera. You are welcome to leave that in the chat box. <laughs> so, very good. So the, the Jesuits... <clears throat> The Jesuits brought a new face to the Catholic Church. There's a reason why the Catholics didn't want the Jesuits there. But I think when the Catholic Church needed a makeover, at least externally, to show the world, you know, you have a Pope, a Pope who doesn't take any special automobile to work, who lives in poverty, who you see him in, in working with homeless people in the streets with his sleeves rolled up. This Pope brought about a whole new image to Catholicism than the royal monarchy that was the Catholic Church before. For all it may be is the publicity stunt. I've spoken to some disenchanted Catholics who tell me that this Pope is the worst thing that ever happened to Catholicism, that he is the, the, he is the Antichrist, he's a heretic, he's a this, he's a that, he's the next thing. Uh, listen, I'm not an expert in any of the theologies to tell you who's a real Pope and who's a fake Pope. It's not in my jurisdiction to decide that. But I can tell you that there's definitely what to be found in, in Jesuit uh, priesthood. And it is a reason why the Jesuits were the most successful in bringing Jews over to their site. Because they embodied certain Jewish values of a very high level of intellectual study, theology, philosophy, the ability to communicate, to share ideas, not through you know, burning people on crosses, but to share ideas through persuasion, through convincing, through writing books. Jesuits on the, have PhDs and they're very, very academic people. And also their work of tikkun olam, their work of helping people and the downtrodden and the poor, and it's a value for them. They, they, they live, they take a vow of poverty. It's a, they have to live in poverty. It's something unusual. And I, you know, it's, it's a very unique thing, and it's always been a drawing force to people, is this Jesuit order. Back to Pope Clemens Thirteenth. Pope Clemens was under tremendous pressure to ban the Jesuits from the Catholic Church. And there was even one monarch, I don't remember in which country he was, but he was so upset at the Jesuits and their undermining of his authority by missionizing everywhere in his country that he essentially gathered them all up together and exported them out of their country, delivered them to Rome, and he said, this is a gift back to the Pope. He can take his people. We don't need them here. And the Jesuits were persecuted because of their work all over the place. Um, and this last point of history where there's a Jesuit Pope is actually a whole new era for the Catholic Church. At this point in history, I'll tell you, Abed Nanote, I wrote some notes about him. So, Abed Nanote, his name is Claude Adrian Nanote. So, he was born in 1711, and he died in 1793. His most famous contribution, aside from his many philosophical works, uh, his most famous goal in life was to undermine the writings of a man by the name of Voltaire. Have you heard of Voltaire? So, people love Voltaire. Voltaire has said some very brilliant lines that people love to quote. He's also one of the most vile people you'll ever read in your whole life if you actually read more than what anybody wants you to read from Voltaire. Why he is so quoted and, and cherished and looked up to, I, I don't know. To tell you the truth is, I'm, 
I don't know. In terms of anti-Semitism, there are always people who try to draw him as he was a great person, and really he was a rabid anti-Semite. Chacham Faur has a few articles, by the way, of why the Jewish people were inclined to follow a certain philosopher by the name of Vico, who really attacked Voltaire on many different levels to, to defend his faith from Voltaire. Voltaire was essentially attacking anything holy and sacred to the Catholic Church, but in doing so, he attacked anybody in any faith, any religion or people that he felt were primitive or backwards. Um, Abba Nonote writes this major work defending faith from Voltaire, and you can imagine that that made waves in the world of philosophy, but it pushed the Pope to actually give a letter of approval, because here is a man who is well-versed enough in theology to defend the faith from a man who is becoming very famous at this time in Europe. Um, this specific pope was, they tried to force him to disavow the Jesuits, but that's why Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is mentioning, it's a big deal. It's a big deal that this Jesuit priest has a haskama, has an approbation by a pope who's not a Jesuit on his writings. Um, pope Clement Thirteenth, you're welcome to look him up. It's actually his relationship with the Jesuits is what gets him in trouble a lot of his life. He was born in... Um, 1693 in Venice, and he dies in 1769. I don't want to talk much about the Pope. I came here to talk to you about Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Let's keep reading. So he's now quoting to us from this Abbot Nonote. So back in the 22, that's not a footnote, but above the line. And I'm now copying over for you what this abbot wrote. The standing of the Jewish people today is under the rule of the Christians and the Muslims. And on the next page, so now we're on page 9 in the PDF. And the wise non-Jews they are bewildered and they wonder. That from all the great civilizations that were in the past, Ashur, the Syrians, Mitzrayim, Egypt, Ufaras, and Persia, Veroma, and Rome, and Zecher, there's none, we don't have any remembrance of them today. They've already disappeared from the world. And the Jewish people are a small, tiny nation. They're around now for thousands, hundreds of years. Even though the Jewish people are scattered throughout the world, even on remote islands. But the Jews are really on remote islands. If any of you are from Jerba, or you're familiar with the Jewish community of Jerba, that's a remote island. I did a wedding in the Sephardic synagogue in St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. The Jews were there also. Everywhere you go, Amisal was still there. They still survived. Still Sifrei Torah. Still Shabbat. Still Kashrut. Said not only are these Jewish people scattered globally, but they live a life of suffering, of slavery, of oppression. This can only be the work of the hand of God. Because he is trying to allow this nation to survive, to exist in the world. Like HaKadosh Baruch already promised in the books of the prophets. Says this Jesuit priest, do you know why the Jewish people are surviving? Why it's the secret of the Jewish person's survival? 
The secret, the secret is that Kadosh Baruch Hu has promised them not to destroy them, and says this Jesuit priest, everyone in the world who has a mind should know that this is the hand of God doing what he can to preserve the Jewish people. And Lidinaz, I see you raise your hand or you just... No, okay, um, sorry. Not particularly, but that is, that is like a main tenet of Christian faith and it was the idea originally came from St. Augustine, so it's definitely not exclusive to Jesuits. Very good. So let me, let me now tell you, Lidinaz, because you brought that up, that there is a reason why Rabbi Sheptov Gagin is quoting this. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that I could prove it. I found this in the footnotes. I sent you once a link to the English Keter Shemtov, the translation by uh, the rabbi who was translating it online. And in the footnote, he suggests that this may have been inspired by the book Bet Yehuda of a certain Ashkenazi rabbi. And that's why Rabbi Shemtov Gagin is copying, you should know, even the incorrect English tr writing here, he's copying over from another another book that uses the exact same spelling. So part of me says that he's correct, that this is inspired by who, and I'm gonna tell you right now. I added a PDF in the Google Classroom, if you want to see Mark Twain's famous essay, What is the Secret of the Survival of the Jews? I'm sure that many of you are familiar with that already on your own. I wanna introduce you today to Rabbi Yitzchak Bear Levinson. Let's read one more paragraph. One more paragraph and we'll get to it. It's going to answer what you just said. Let me do one more paragraph. It's not only this priest. It's not unique to him that he was surprised about the Jewish people's status. Those who hate us and those who love us also felt this way. And any researcher of, of history of the world, that how the Jewish people after all these years are still around, we no longer have a, uh, one geography that we're in, we don't have one language that we all speak. And they're still suffering at our hands, meaning he's saying in the eyes of these, uh, these researchers, they're still suffering massacres and murders and exiles. And about after every wave of persecution of anti-Semitism, it shakes itself off and it stands up straight. We have lost half of our armies, but the Jewish people are still here. Not only has the Jewish people survived physically, but spiritually. The spiritual light that the Jewish people give off, radiate into the world, has not been extinguished by the darkness that should have extinguished it a long time ago. Adraba, to the contrary. The Torah, both the written and the oral, lift up and preserve the Jewish people in every place they go, or the Jewish people preserve it everywhere they go. And according to him, it's only 1%, out of, uh, 1 out of 100, that separated themselves from us, whether because they love to be victorious, or because they wish for this false honor that if I become like the rest of the nations of the world, then they will love me, but it's not true. And in next week's shiur, Rav Shem Tov Gagin is going to list for us these 12 instances, the first of which we already did, the separation of the tribe of Yehuda and Israel from each other into two different Jewish kingdoms. But Shem Tov Gagin here is telling us that there's a secret here of Jewish survival. 
And he's attributing that secret to loyalty to the Torah. The Torah is what took us everywhere. The Torah is what preserved us everywhere. And even this priest, even this abbot was able to tell us that the reason why Am Yisrael has survived is because of this. And here's where I wish to introduce to you a little bit of irony. I told you that this piece most likely is inspired by the book Bet Yehuda of a certain Ashkenazi rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson, otherwise known by his colleagues as the Ribal, Resh Yud Bed Lamen. This was his acronym. If you'll give me just a few more minutes of your time, I wish to share with you a little bit about him and then to go on uh, to our next shiur, and uh, I'll take any questions at the end of this shiur itself. Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson was a Ukrainian rabbi who at the age of three, according to what we know about him, at the age of three, he was already sent to the Cheder. At the age of nine, he composed a work on Kabbalah. Now, how that works exactly, don't ask me this question. But he composed a work on Kabbalah, which seemed to have impressed the rabbis of his town. At the age of ten, he was already versed in Talmud and knew the entire Tanakh by heart. At the age of 18, he was married. And not long after that, his marriage soured and he was divorced. He never remarried again. He never had any children. Uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson passed away just like that, without having a family of his own. What's unique about Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson? Why do I care that this is the inspiration of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin? Because Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson had a nickname. And his nickname was the Ukrainian Mendelssohn. This was his nickname. Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson was none other than the leader of the movement of Haskalah, which we would attribute to the early reformers of, of Ashkenaz, if that's where you're going to speak in these terms. These early Haskalah rabbis in Europe were almost indistinguishable from their, other, their counterparts. In fact, until today, I'm not really sure what distinguishes them from their counterparts. Politics, aside from that, I'm not quite certain. But for Rav Shem Tov Gagin to take information out of a book of Haskalah, in order to undermine the, the movement that came out of the Haskalah, I don't know, in my, in my head it has some kind of uh, poetic irony to it. It's, some, it's something that puts the Jewish people together in some interesting loop. It comes around full circle. Yes, Lina. Um, I just have a little bit about um, the difference between the Eastern and Western Haskalah, because the Haskalah in Germany was very much about assimilating to German, Christian, or secular society, whereas the Eastern Haskalah was focused much more on um, a, a Jewish independent, autonomous independentness, where they are. So it was much more about modernizing, but being autonomous within the modern nation state, whereas the Haskalah in Germany was just about completely assimilating. So I think that could be um, maybe... That's a very good observation, Ash, and I'll say if I can add to that. So essentially what you find is, let's call them Western Haskalah, essentially pushing for assimilation, abandonment of the Jewish faith, almost entirely becoming Christian, uh, leaving to secular values. And in the East, you find a certain type of, of Haskalah that is not abandoning Judaism, but if I'm going to borrow the word in a positive sense, trying to reform Judaism, trying to, within the context of the Jewish community and the countries in which they live, you want to use words like modernize or progress. I'm not going to jump on any of those trigger words, but, but trying to promote change in the Jewish community. 
in particular with political autonomy. So it led to a lot of push in learning agriculture and being able to be uh, self-sufficient as a Jewish community, to not live in poverty, to have relations with local governments, speaking the language of the local countries in which we were in, uh, so on and so forth. These, uh, like we mentioned, if you remember, we... Can I just, Rabbi, can I yeah. just clarify? I think when you said that there's not, big, not a big distinction, I don't think you were referring to the East and West of Europe as much as those who persecuted the the Haskalah rabbis and those who were the Haskalah rabbis. Am I correct? Yes. For example, I can give you rabbis from the Haskalah that if you see their portraits, you'll see them wearing strimals and having long peot. So if he was a Haskalah heretic, then I don't know. So what does that make everybody else? It's, it's a certain, it's a little bit that history was rewritten by the victors of the story, or at least the, the supposed victors of the story. I think we all lost from the story, but that's going to be another shiur at a different time. I want to speak with you a moment about Rabbi Yitzhak Bear Levinson. Uh, this... He, he ended up spending his life traveling from different places, writing books. He wrote a famous, famous book uh, that was called the Teuda, the Teuda B'Israel. He essentially proposed a few new concepts to the Jewish community that he felt would solve problems of contemporary Jewish life in Ukraine. So he urged the study of Tanakh before the study of Talmud. It sounds very unreasonable. People should know what's actually written by God instead of first dealing with what was written by man. He proposed that people should study secular languages. So you should be not just speaking Yiddish. He viewed Yiddish as a, as a uh, I once said something bad about Yiddish in one of these classes and I feel bad. But he viewed it as an inferior language that could you could speak either a very good Hebrew. He promoted the speech of Hebrew among Jewish people. And externally, the Jews should be involved in the language of the land to the point that they could express themselves and write and speak in the language of whichever respective country they were in. He very much pushed for the study of secular studies, so science, literature, things that would make Jews well-rounded and worldly. Uh, he wanted people to abandon all kinds of little jobs and you know, little, little trades and, and focus on something big that could be sustainable financially for the Jewish community and the Jewish community would be able to hold its own weight. His personal belief was that agriculture was the right way to go, to buy lands, to have farms, to do whatever needed to happen in order to support the Jewish community. Interestingly enough, the original printings of this book, Tudab Israel, have on them haskamot, have approbations from some of the great rabbis of his generation. Uh, so you have over there a haskama from Rabbi Israel of Rajin, who, who agrees to this plan. He likes it. It sounds great to him. Only a little bit later, when they identify Rabbi Levinson as a maskil, all of a sudden the war breaks out against him, particularly in the Hasidic community. Particularly in the Hasidic community. Uh, it's, it's not a one-sided war. Rabbi Levinson belonged to a group of maskinim who had spent much of their life writing all kinds of you know, satire and comedies and performances mocking the Hasidic way of life. So if you're familiar with this period of Haskalah, there are many, many works that were written to mock specifically the Hasidic community. I'm sorry to my wife for bringing this up, but you know, there's even songs that, that, that survived till Israel. You may be familiar with uh, uh, the song Rebbe Elimelech, when the Rebbe dance, all the Hasidim dance, when the Rebbe sings, all the Hasidim sing. It's mocking a certain simple way of, uh, of the Hasidic life. And so he also published his own book, um, against the Hasidic community, I think it was called Divrei Tzadikim. It was his own uh, satire, work of satire mocking the Hasidic community, though most likely that book was written once he was rejected by the Hasidim and not before he was rejected by the Hasidim. Uh, he tried as much as he could to influence inside of the Jewish community. You're dealing about a world of Haskalah prior to the major split, to the major rift between what you'll then call orthodoxy and, and the Jewish Enlightenment movement. So this is when it was still really not so discernible. Um, it came to a point where the Hasidim would refer to in that generation any kid who dropped out of yeshiva 
and he would go towards the Haskalah, they would call him a Teudanik. You know, like he's the guy who read the book of Rabbi Levinson, and that's what led him astray, away from the world of Yeshivot, to go study unusual things like Tanakh, or Hebrew language, or you know, Russian, or whatever else, whatever unusual things a Yeshiva student would be doing, I say that sarcastically. Uh, he ultimately finds himself in the company of royalty, Russian royalty, who feel very uh, kind towards him. Uh, there's a certain Russian governor, mayor of sorts, a prince of sorts, who asks 34 theological questions to Rabbi Levinson, in which he defends the Jewish faith, he explains all kinds of aspects of the Jewish faith. Some say that this work is a work of, of fiction, meaning it wasn't a true story, it was just a book he wrote in a question and answer session. He had a very famous work uh, that was called Bet Yehudan. Bet Yehudan was the main part of his life, was his magnum opus perhaps. Bet Yehudan was trying to explain Judaism to the Ukrainian Christian world and to show them that there are values in Judaism that all members of Ukrainian society can learn from, he actually ends up getting a prize from the Russian government for his scholarship to the Jewish community. Uh, but in classic Russian sense, essentially when they see that Rabbi Levinson is broke and he has no money, they buy some 200 copies of his book. It's a lot of money. They buy 200 copies of his book and they distribute it among the local Jewish communities and then force the Jewish communities to pay the Russian government back for the books they bought from Rabbi Levinson. So there's a strained relationship here in general between Rabbi Levinson and the rest of the communities. He has a work that is pushed, this is relevant to the United Kingdom, Moses Montefiore pushes for the translation of one of his major works called Ephes Damim. Ephes Damim is a book that Rabbi Levinson wrote uh, proving that the, all the blood libels against the Jewish people are false. And the Jewish people do not kill Christian babies to bake matzot. And if you remember the Damascus affair that we've spoken about in the last few shiurim, yeah, this Damascus, Yaakov and Tebi, and the, the allegations that Jews had killed someone there. Yeah, he, essentially, Moses Montefiore wants this book to be translated to English and published. That's what happens, from, if I understand correctly, and distributed to the government so that they could see the Jewish people have no hand in any kind of blood libel. Uh, I think if I could say anywhere else about, about uh, Rabbi Levinson, I just wanted to tell you some of his works that he wrote, which you could then ask yourself, was he really a maskil? Or was he a wonderful rabbi defending the Jewish faith? And I, I don't have an answer for you, but aside from the book Tuda Bisrael, which I mentioned was about reforming the yeshiva curriculum and the Jewish society, Bet Yehuda, which was made of two parts, in which he's explaining the Jewish faith to the nations of the world. And... The book Eves Damima, Blood Libels, I told you about. He has a book, Zerubavel. Zerubavel is a work in which he defends the Jewish faith from certain attacks on Christianity, by Christianity on them. Uh, he has a book called Achia Shiloni HaChose, in which he attacks the Christian missionary efforts on the Jewish community. So he, he attacks their, their attempt to make Jews into Christians. Um, he writes a book, Yimin Sidki, in which he there was a famous Jewish, um, we call him a mumar in Hebrew. A mumar is someone who converts out of the Jewish faith, and he spent the rest of his life writing polemics against Judaism. And Rabbi Levinson spends this entire book defending the Jewish faith from all of the attacks that this Jew who had converted to Christianity attacks Judaism. Um, he has a book called Tar HaSofer. Tar HaSofer is a book which is intended to show that rabbinic Judaism is superior to Karite Judaism, and essentially defends the Jewish faith from all the attacks that the Karite scholars had on the Jewish faith. And not to mention one of his other works, which is called Or Liyad, Yad is Yudalit 14, 
it's 14 defenses of the Talmud, 14 unusual pieces of Agadah, of Agadic literature in the Talmud that many people made a mockery out of Judaism because. And he defends that the words of our rabbis are accurate and they're correct if you know how to interpret them properly. This is among many other articles he wrote. I mentioned to you that he wrote a number of works of satire against Hasidim. But when I look at this story, I look at the situation, I look at this person who is Rabbi Yitzchak Ber Levinson, and I say, to, to what end? What's the purpose of this persecution? Here you have a rabbi. We mentioned Moses Mendelssohn last week. Moses Mendelssohn, who came to the Jewish scene, wrote a commentary in the Torah. The same Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan, who's attacking the reform, says about Moses Mendelssohn that it's forbidden to speak ill of him. He's one of the greatest Jewish scholars we ever had. And here I come back to this point, that I believe wholeheartedly that Sephardic rabbis got themselves tied up in a war that they did not understand. Forgive me for if I sound disrespectful to Talmud Echamim that came before me. Some of these rabbis, some of their greatest crimes was trying to push the rationalist agendas of Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon and the Rambam in Ashkenaz. Some would even say that Rabbi Levinson's theology focused and rotated. Much of what he tried to do in his works was to show Ashkenazi Jewry that this path was not novel, that the Sephardic Jews had already done this before at likes of the Rambam and the Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon. That he's not a maskil, that Haskalah itself is just original Judaism. And some of me says, if this rabbi had lived in Sepharad, in Morocco, in Iraq, and where he would have lived, he would have just met another Rabbi Yosef Masas. But they were born, unfortunately, into a world in which everything that deviated from the party line was attacked and destroyed. Everything is vilified. From the way you wear your hair in a ponytail to the type of shoes you bring to the Beda Knesset, that's enough to make you a heretic, a pikoros, or a kofel. And when you see Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan, for example, condemning reformed Jews with a blanket sweeping statement, but at the same time praising Moses Mendelssohn, it makes you wonder how could you attack one and respect the other, unless you're not familiar with these politics, unless you don't know exactly how this works. When it comes to Zionism and Israel and everything that surrounds the Zionist movement and the Zionist push to go back to the Tanakh, the early Zionist settlers, even if they were not religious, were obsessed with the Tanakh, quoting Pesukim and teaching Pesukim and being biblical, even giving each other biblical names that are unusual like Nimrod or Hagar or all kinds of unusual names of why would you choose, of all the names of the Tanakh, why would you choose those for your children? But they were obsessed with the Tanakh, obsession with agriculture, with values of speaking the Hebrew language over other languages like Yiddish. And then you see the wars between Orthodox Jewry and Zionism. And you say, wow, so then along comes a rabbi like Rav Kook who comes to heal this divide. That he's a religious Zionist. And I tell you, Sefaladim never had this problem. Because unlike the Ashkenazi rabbi who sees Jews building the land of Israel, learning Tanakh and speaking Hebrew, and says, oh, he's a heretic, he's reformed. The Sephardic rabbi saw a Jew who learns Tanakh, who speaks Hebrew, and is trying to build the land of Israel. What's wrong with that? And what happens is when we start to take guidance from the Judaism that is around us, that is all about division, that is all about fragmentation, that's how you get to situations like what we're dealing with right now. Where all of a sudden you can have rabbis, chief rabbis, writing off entire groups of Jews without even understanding who they are or what they are about. And as I said in my class three times ago, 
nobody should suspect it to belong to any denomination of the denominations I mentioned above. But if we would be allowed to explore Jewish thoughts in an environment in which we could share these ideas and instead of burning people's books or banishing them from Jewish communities, we can engage, accept what we wish to accept, reject what we wish to reject. This healthy dialogue that does not exist in the Jewish community is something that we must restore. And the first part to fixing the problem is what I started this year with. Before you can bring about shalom, achdut, unity, you have to first understand what causes that lack of unity, that lack of togetherness. If we're not willing to have the painful conversations, to analyze the mistakes of the past, we'll never be able to fix the mistakes of today, and most definitely not the mistakes that we're going to make in the future. Next Tuesday, we'll be here together. We'll be taking apart some of the more controversial episodes that happened in the Jewish people. And uh, I hope that I did my part in explaining this introduction of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin into the next part of the work, which is going to be about the breached walls of Israel. And God willing, I look forward to seeing you here at this time, at this place, next Tuesday, if we're not in Yerushalayim already by then. God willing.